Oh yeah, brother, it's the Grokster. What you gonna do when the 24-inch pythons and Grokamania run wild on you, brother? Ooh. Good afternoon, I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkey Grox Radio Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, twins, young lovers, and the pledge. Also joining us is Doug Osherhoff to talk about super cold liquids. Also, you can find out how fast the Earth is spinning. All this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming up here on Berkey Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Uh, I feel like I'm in the groveling mood. <laughs> <laughs> like I need to get down on my hands and knees and beg for what? <laughs> Money, I guess. Yeah, well, it, it does make the world go round. <laughs> yeah, uh, and this time we're doing it on behalf of Calyx, right? That is correct. Although if you want to give it to Berkeley Grox uh, specifically, <laughs> that's not a problem. <laughs> I can always use a lobster dinner. <laughs> so what would you do for a million dollars? How about $10,000? <laughs> well, for $10,000, I'd eat a Klondike bar. <laughs> wow, a Klondike bar. Yeah, that's that, that's how risky I am. That takes you off the zone diet, right? That that would be a reason, yeah, because my insulin would spike and it would completely throw me off the world. <laughs> Ooh, okay. But how about $1,000? For just $1,000? Um, I'm not sure. We're going by factors of 10, so it's hard for me to <laughs> scale logarithmically. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a tenth of a Klondike bar, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, so luckily, if you are, in fact, uh, if you would, in fact, like to pledge to Calyx, because we are in the middle of our Calyx fundraiser, uh-huh. you don't have to spend anywhere near $1,000. No, not oh. even $500. Yeah, well, not even $100, although that is perhaps at the upper limit. Uh-huh. I guess at the very lowest level, you can, in fact, spend... 115 115 <laughs> Wow. I know my math. <laughs> well, it's all rounding error, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, again, so we are in the middle of Calyx Fundraiser. A lot of great programs on these things, besides just Berkeley Grocks. So luckily they have other programs like music, uh, other fine public affairs programs. Uh, let's see, film close-ups. Film close-ups. Woman in the Arts. Yeah. Northgate. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, brand new ones produced, like Mind the Gap, which is very cool. Uh, the gap I'm not in, sure what the gap uh, stands for. It's but. the gap in your knowledge, I guess, or gap <laughs> in my knowledge. <laughs> so, again, if you want to support fine programming like this, you know, we have uh, a number of fine gifts we can offer to you. Right. So, what do you get for 115 this uh, year? <laughs> I don't know. Every year, at least, you get a nice program guide, at least. Yes, the yeah. program guide. The program guide. Uh, you get a sticker, which Ooh, is the nice... You can place it anywhere, on your yeah. on your forehead. Or your butt. <laughs> <laughs> or both. <laughs> Maybe we should offer tattoos next year. I, I, I imagine most of our listeners already have those, yeah. <laughs> but, the Calyx tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> right next to the Berkeley Grox tattoo. <laughs> But if you don't already have it, I don't think they've offered this before. A bottle opener? Or have hmm. they? Perhaps they have. I have never seen it. It actually looks pretty nice. It's like this little plastic thing with a key ring. Uh-huh. And you could just take it everywhere you go. Oh, very nice. Well, that's that's really useful. Yeah. Uh, there's the t-shirt you can get. and also. Have you seen a t-shirt? Uh, no, I haven't. It looks like two amoebas uh, playing jumping jacks or, something, or you know, playing some sort of game. Oh, well, so science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least biology, microbiology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and few people know this, but in fact, the station is run by a uh, very sub micro uh, <laughs> microorganisms. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Single cellular organisms are always fun. Yeah. Uh, also, you do get a pullover hooded sweatshirt for that huge hundred fifteen dollar level. Uh, but of course, if that's uh, beyond your range, you can uh, pledge any amount really. Um, if you if you drop down just to ninety five dollar level, you'll you won't get the t shirt, but that's fine. Maybe you don't want the t shirt. Yeah, but you still get the sweatshirt. Sweat. Yeah, that's a certainly good deal, at least in the Bay Area. Right, and it has a very nice design, which uh, I guess is a throwback to 1994. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, a picture of these, uh, one person on the phone, uh, or skull, and then talking to uh, another skull who's the Calyx DJ. Okay. <laughs> and there's a nice front pocket uh, knitted over, so. Okay, very well, nice. very nice. Um, yeah, so, but if that's still beyond your range, you can drop down to the $50 level. So you get everything except. Uh, instead of the, put it, the, the uh, hooded t- 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 sweatshirt, <laughs> you'll in fact get the t shirt instead. Yes. So it's just the switch there. But at the very basic level, just at the $30 level, you can pledge. Uh, you get the program schedule, the sticker, and of course, the, the bottle opener. The, like, very cool bottle opener. All for $30. All for $30. Wow. We, we sound like salesmen now, huh? <laughs> yeah, except, you know, if we we're working on commission, I think we'd be out of business in a week or so. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, the the Calyx uh, pledge drive will actually be over in less than a week. So yes, it's uh, it's the one thing we'd like to do here. We we'd like to bring you fine programming, but we also don't like to spend too much time uh, asking for donations. Yeah, it's about the content, I guess. <laughs> it's it's about the content. <laughs> Give them a call here at uh, Calyx six five one zero six four two five two five nine or six four two K A L X and pledge whatever you can to support community radio uh, here in Berkeley and a little science. <laughs> All right, so I guess this goes along with uh, trying to get money for the station here. It's also trying to get suns. You watched 2001 too many times, huh? <laughs> you want to make Jupiter another sun? Apparently all you have to do is increase the mass and then... Uh, <laughs> right, put a few monoliths on. That's right. Well, uh, and then, of course, you'll see stars. <laughs> Actually, this is having to do with uh, progeny, your male progeny. Oh, oh, th- that kind of sun. Yes, right. So uh, it turns out actually that uh, younger insects, anyway, when they mate with females, mm-hmm. younger males, mm-hmm. will produce more sons than they will daughters. Interesting. Yeah, so it apparently seems to be, uh, they think, an evolutionary advantage. And this was actually a very recent study that was done um, by uh, Tristan Lawn, who is now at uh, the University of California in Santa Barbara, and Allison Pichetta, who is at Queen's University in Canada. Hmm. And uh, they were wondering why this uh, seems to be the case. And actually, they did a study where they mated a number of uh, young virgin females Mm -hmm. with uh, uh, young virile males who haven't uh, mated yet. Mm -hmm. And they found that, in fact, they got more sons than daughters. More sons than daughters. Wow. What's the world coming to? (laughs) Uh, Well, their explanation is that uh, by the time males are older, they've accumulated more mutations in their DNA. Mm -hmm. And as a result, this uh, leads to them actually wanting to have less uh, or actually fewer sons because the mutations would be more likely passed on in the males than the females. Right. So there must be some sort of evolutionary benefit for them to have more sons when they're younger. Right. Even well, though the, the insects are probably not aware of it for themselves. Right, right. Well, the, the question, of course, is going to be exactly how is this uh, selection process occurring in the mating process? Mm-hmm. They think maybe it, they might be selecting specifically for quote, male sperm, right, or over the female sperm, but it's not exactly sure how that might be. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I read uh, from somewhere that 
there's been some correlation that the more there's males in your population, the more likelihood that that country will go to war. <laughs> well, yeah, the more young males, I guess, anyway. Right. I, I think that increases also the incidence of just petty crimes and such. Yeah. Because, you know, we have a lot of testosterone and nothing to do. <laughs> so I wonder what, what, what the U.S. is like right now, given our uh, situation around the country. Well, I, I, I guess it just shows that you don't have to be a young male to uh, be, you know, a warmonger. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, very fascinating work. This is uh, published in a recent edition of The Proceedings of the Royal Society. So, Charles, how old are you? Uh, chronologically or mentally? <laughs> uh, chronologically. Uh, well, over, uh, over, uh, 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> at so least. You, so you must be in your prime. Yes. Uh, well. Which, of course, is a number. But my, but my number is not prime. <laughs> uh, which, of course, is a number that is divisible only by itself and one, of course, right? Right. Um, so it's been known uh, since Euclid's time that there is an infinite number of primes. And it's actually very easy to approve. So suppose, suppose for a moment that there is a largest prime n, uh-huh. and then you, what you do is you multiply all the numbers together, all these prime numbers, and then add one. Uh-huh. And this new number certainly is larger than that right. uh, prescribed n. So if the initial assumption is correct, the new number will actually not be a prime because any prime that you divide into it will leave a remainder of one. Right. So it, it is prime. Yeah. So this new composite has to be a prime. Right. A harder thing to prove is, are there an infinite pair of primes, primes which differ only by two? Oh, okay. For example, um, 17 and 19. Uh-huh. So, okay, so for a while it's been known that the average spacing between primes near a number x, where x is an arbitrary number, is the natural re- not logarithm of x, and it's a number that's closely related to the number of digits in x. But um, we couldn't show that beyond a certain x if there were going to be more twin primes. But we're now one step closer. Hmm. So uh, some mathematicians in Hungary showed that for any positive number x, there exist uh, primes p1 and p2, such that the difference between the two can be smaller than uh, x times the logarithm of p. Oh, okay. So this is a very general proof showing that it might be possible, but it still doesn't show that they exist for sure, that right. an infinite number of twin primes. Right. But uh, we are getting closer, and one of these days, uh, this could be uh, a stepping stone for uh, getting the final solution. Very cool. Well, all sorts of cool things in primes, yeah. especially that, that long-standing Riemann hypothesis, which uh, <laughs> also... They finally solved it, right? Well, no, apparently not. They, they haven't verified it yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this was reported at the recent uh, meeting of the American Institute of Mathematics. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology. In a few moments, Doug Ogerhoff joins us to talk about superliquid helium-3, so stay tuned. This is 90.7 FM you're listening to.
welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Matter under extreme conditions can behave in very, very unusual and unexpected manners. For example, uh, at very high temperatures, matter loses electrons and takes on the plasma state. But at extremely low temperatures, very different effects can be observed. Well, joining us today is an expert in this field of uh, super-cooled liquids, uh, Professor Douglas Osterhoff from Stanford University. Uh, Professor Osterhoff received his Nobel Prize in Physics in 1996 for his work in supercooled liquid helium. Professor Osterhoff, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. My pleasure to be here. So first of all, could you give us uh, a little background into the work that led up to your Nobel Prize? Okay, well, I guess it all started back in actually 1940 when people at Los Alamos first liquefied helium-3. To most people, I guess, helium-3 and helium-4 are, are, are just different isotopes of the same thing, but at low temperatures, they behave very differently, even though chemically they're the same. Uh, helium-3 atoms are in a class that includes electrons, so uh, they have to obey the Pauli exclusion principle, whereas helium-4 atoms are Bose particles, and as we now know, Bose particles uh, at low temperatures will uh, condense into a, a macroscopically occupied state of Bose-Einstein condensation. Uh, but but actually, it's, of course, been known since, I guess, 1910 that, that in certain metals, the conduction electrons, the electrons which are not attached to the atoms, can also condense into an apparently macroscopically occupied state, uh, which we call superconductivity. And that, that state was actually discovered in, in 1910 by Camerleonis, the person that first liquefied helium. And uh, uh, the microscopic nature of that state and origins of that behavior were really not understood well until 1957, when Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer uh, published their theory explaining uh, superconductivity, the BCS theory, Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer theory, and they shared the Nobel Prize, ironically, for that work in 1972, the year that, that we discovered a BCS state in liquid helium-3. And so these properties, were they predicted, or did they come about unexpectedly? Yeah, so actually, uh, the, the BCS theory came out in 57, and by 59, people had were beginning to speculate that, that although that theory was very specific for electrons and metals, that a variation of that theory appeared to predict that, that in fact, liquid helium-3 might become a BCS condensate. Uh, it wouldn't be a superconductor because the atoms are neutral, so they can't carry charge. Uh, that was predicted by Phil Anderson uh, at Princeton University. At that time, he was at Bell Laboratories. And uh, people started looking for this state. Uh, Phil had, had predicted a, a, a transition temperature of 80 thousandths of a degree. And within, I guess, the next seven years, people had cooled helium-3 down to two thousandths of a degree without seeing the superfluidity that Phil had predicted. And it, I think at that point, no one was looking anymore. Uh, the, the theorists, uh, and there were a number of them, uh, decided that probably the, the pairing mechanism, the interactions that, that created the, what are called Cooper pairs, which allows uh, two Fermi particles to behave like a single Bose particle, they must have had the wrong interaction, and then they were predicting TCs of 50 microdegrees. And to this day, no one has cooled liquid helium-3 down to that low a temperature. I so see. by the time I got into the field, which was uh, starting as a graduate student in 1967, no one was searching for superfluidity in helium-3 anymore. 
And what are some of the interesting properties of uh, the special superfluid uh, helium-3? Well, it, it, I mean, it has the general property that all superfluids have, that matter can flow uh, without viscosity, without the dissipation of any energy. Uh, we see that in superfluid helium-4. But there are a lot of other things, uh, because in, in the case of helium-3, the, the entities that, that form the, the ordered state uh, have structure. Uh, they have orbital angular momentum uh, for the, the pairs for pairs, and they also have spin angular momentum. And, and that makes the order state very complicated. Uh, and it, in fact, at TC, uh, the ordered state is infinitely degenerate. That is to say that there are essentially an infinite number of possible ordered states. Uh, and then as you cool down, you foresee that nature, of course, is, is very clever in, in choosing the state that has the lowest free energy. And so that state is called the Anderson-Brinkman-Morel state. And then at lower temperature still, uh, there is a first-order phase transition uh, to uh, a, another state, which is called the Ballion-Wertheimer state. And so there's an enormous richness, and in fact, in, in silica aerogels, if you put helium-3 into a very low-density gel, sort of like the gel that, that exists in photographic film, even though the gel only occupies a fraction of a percent of the volume, it causes the helium-3 to order into a different state. So it's very rich, uh, and I think that I guess the other thing I didn't say was the magnetic resonance, nuclear magnetic resonance properties of the ordered states are quite remarkable. This was worked out by Tony Leggett. Uh, I think we sent him a preprint of our original article in 1972, and I think in less than a month he had figured out the basis for the very unusual magnetic resonance behavior that we had reported. But but the, the spin dynamics are just remarkably rich. Uh, Tony shared the Nobel Prize for physics in 2003, uh, just a few years after uh, Rich and Lee and I got the prize for discovering fluidity in helium. I'm just curious, what's the mathematical description you use for these superfluids? Is it a continuum, or would you uh, describe it as particles of nuclei in an ensemble? The, the ordered state is, is described by a continuum wave function. Uh, for superfluid helium-4, it's the square root of the density times the phase factor, which oscillates in space, e to the i phi, I, of course, is square root of minus one. That's very simple. There's no structure in that. In helium-3, the order parameter is described by a three-by-three three matrix uh, of, with complex coefficients, and, and the axes, x and y axis, describe the orbital and the spin degrees of freedom of the system. For instance, in helium-4, there is such a thing as a quantized vortex. It, because it's a macroscopic quantum state. If you go around a loop, uh, the, the oscillating phase describing the matter waves has to come back on itself uh, in phase. Otherwise, that, that state would not stable. And of course, that's basically the description of the Bohr model of the atom. Uh, but now it's on a macroscopic scale. So in helium-4, you have uh, quantized vorticity, uh, but it's a very simple vortex with no structure. Basically, the order parameter just vanishes uh, once the radius gets to be sufficiently small. Ironically, the, 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 the velocity of rotation, normally we think it's for solid body rotation, it's proportional to the radial distance from the axis of rotation. In the case of quantized vorticity, it's exactly the opposite. It's proportional to one over the, the distance from the axis of rotation. So it gets higher and higher and higher, and eventually the superfluidity breaks down. You don't exceed the velocity of light or anything like that. In helium-3, because of these extra degrees of freedom, the vortex core, as it's called, the region very close to the rotation axis, can itself have remarkable structure. And in fact, uh, 
a group in Helsinki, Finland, I think has, has, has cataloged something like eight or so different vortex core structures. Normally you think that the circulation, which is the integral of V dot ds around the loop, uh, is, would be uh, just an integral multiple of, of, of h bar, the Planck's constant divided by 2 pi. However, in the case of helium-3, you can also get get to uh, two h bar, uh, depending again on on the the uh, the structure uh, of the vortex core. I'm just curious what your views are on developing room temperature superconductors. Physicists have been trying to look for such materials for the last 20 or 30 years. We certainly made progress. We were actually able to get superconductivity with temperatures around the uh, boiling point of liquid nitrogen. Um, do you foresee actual uh, room temperature superconductors in uh, the distant future? Well, to say that I foresee it suggests that I know a lot more than anyone else does. Do I think that it, it is at least in principle possible? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, I think if you look back at the superconductivity that, that Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer explained, uh, where the, the interactions that, that bind uh, or that, that, that form the Cooper pairs are really moderated through the lattice background lattice of the metal, uh, that mechanism doesn't allow one to, to uh, obtain order at, at room temperature. But there's still a tremendous debate going on as to what the origins of, of high temperature superconductivity is. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, and then there are other materials that, that I think, like manganese boride, one would have never imagined that could be a 40 degree superconductor. We don't understand everything about superconductivity. Mm -hmm. I think TCs are up now over 120 Kelvin. Liquid nitrogen is 77 Kelvin. But we still have a long ways to go to get to room temperature. <laughs> right. Some of your seminal research later led up to uh, the development of uh, fMRI. Um, could you tell us a little bit how, um, how that occurred? Well, no, no, no actually, was, that was, we used an early form of magnetic resonance imaging, and I dare say very crude. It, was, it only gave you information along one axis, okay. one-dimensional MRI. Functional MRI was, was developed at Bell Laboratories, and in fact in the same laboratory unit where I had been for the first 15 years after getting my Ph.D., but it was in their biophysics group, and by a person named Seiji Ogawa. Actually, his daughter attended Stanford, was aware of that when I was early when I came to Stanford. Okay, something a little different uh, regarding science policy. Um, it seems uh, in today's climate, there's less and less funding for basic science and more for stuff that, I guess, has more immediate applicability. Um, and yet, you know, we've probably benefited from a lot of the uh, early developments 30, 40 years ago, especially with, say, with uh, quantum mechanics. What do you think is the course of action we should take in terms of funding the research here in the States and abroad? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, that there is, I think, quite a bit of what I would regard as basic research. I think that it is kind of directed in the sense that, for instance, a decision was made uh, by I don't know whom, but in the government, that there would be an, an emphasis on research in nanotechnology. And so we're, I think we're learning quite a bit about nanotechnology, and it's really not very applied at this point. I think it's not clear what will come out of all of that. Another one is uh, quantum computing, of course. Uh, I think there is a goal, that is to say, to, to do quantum encryption. But I think that if you look at the people that are doing the work, in fact, they think of it much more as being basic research. But the thing that, that I think is lacking now is, is a certain freedom that, that investigators need to, in fact, deviate from, from what they've put in their proposal 
to use all of this apparatus that they've built up and that they understand uh, to answer, uh, I guess, what we call curiosity-driven questions. Uh, I th- first of all, I, let me say that that's not true for all funding agencies. I mm-hmm. think the National Science Foundation is quite tolerant of deviation from, from your described research program. But even the National Science Foundation, I look at, at what their purpose is or whatever. Uh, this was rewritten by one of Barbara Mikulski, Senator Mikulski's aides. She's a senator in Maryland uh, to basically state that, that I think something like 80 or so percent of the National Science Foundation uh, research should go in support of economic competitiveness. And the thing I don't know is whether that's what people uh, in Congress actually believe should be the case, whether they believe that's actually what happens. Great. Professor Asherov, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. My pleasure. We were just talking to Professor Douglas Asherov, Nobel Laureate in Physics, to find out more about his thoughts on the Space Shuttle Columbia tragedy. And Richard Feynman, check us out online for the full interview. This is 90.7 FM you're listening to. In a few moments, we'll find out how fast the core spins. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, and now it's time for the question of the week. Yes, hello. This is Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan? Oh my God! I I thought you uh you went to that other uh you know better world a few years ago. Well, you know there are sort of billions and billions of places I could go, and one of the great places, of course, is where you can hear Calyx. Wow, so you've come back to the real world. Well, you can hear it everywhere. It's, it travels billions and billions of miles out into heavens and stuff. So, so uh, we know that there is some intelligent life on Earth, is that right? Well, it's getting less less and less so with the Republicans' office, but, you know, perhaps more and more of the people will come to light and see the fascination of the galaxy. So there must be hope. Uh, <laughs> what do you think we could do about this? Well, I think one of the great hopes is to pledge to Calyx. Ah, that's right. It's uh, Calyx's Pledge Week. That's right, and uh, we here up in the um, heavens are very fascinated by the Calyx, and we'd like to pledge billions and billions of dollars to the station. <laughs> wow, billions and billions. I, I could get our own synchrotron with that. Well, you could even buy billions and billions of them. It's quite amazing. <laughs> so put us down, uh, Carl Sagan, and of course, uh, uh, everyone else up here. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Alvy and uh, Richard the Feynman? Uh, Feynman doesn't have quite as much. He wasn't quite so good at investing his cash. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll send them on regards. We will do, and we'll keep tuning into Calyx up here. It's uh, really great to keep us entertained for billions and billions of eons. Thanks a lot, Carl. Whoa, geez, that was pretty, that was pretty cool. We got uh, Carl Sagan on the line. Yeah. Well, I wonder who's... Uh, all right, anyway, so we should probably do uh, the answer to last week's uh, question of the week. Forrest here. Oh my god, it's, it's Forrest Gubb. My name is Forrest, and I like science. Wow, Forrest, where, how do you get our station, Forrest? 
Well, down here in the south, we all listen to radio, and that's why we hear everything. <laughs> it's it's amazing what comes through. I mean, uh, it, you know, broadcast everywhere. And uh, are there any particular programs you like uh, listening to down there in the south? Well, you know, down here in the south. We're all simple, but we love we love knowledge and we love Calex, especially the Berkeley Rocks program. <laughs> well, uh, we're glad you enjoy it. I mean, uh, we're, we're certainly glad to provide the programming. <laughs> is, is there anything you'd like to <laughs> tell us about it? Uh, well, my mama used to say life's like a box of chocolates. And you know what? Calyx is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> you never want you to know what you're going to get. <laughs> but it's usually pretty good. <laughs> well, my mom always told me it was like sex. Even when it's bad, it's still good. So, <laughs> uh, All right. So uh, would you like to pledge anything for the, our pledge drive? Sure. I'll give you my... Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. <laughs> wow, the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. Uh, I don't know what we can do. We could probably pass that on to the listeners, maybe, and they can get free shrimp. All right, well, we'll send you off a T-shirt for that Bubba Gump <laughs> Shrimp Company. Uh, thanks for calling, Forrest. Thank you very much. Greetings, Highlander. It's Sean Connery with this week's question of the week. You've conquered them all to become the one, but have you conquered the core? I don't think so, not at least the core of the Earth. But how can you when it's spinning so much faster than the rest of the planet? Two degrees faster. And that's how you can conquer the core. Ah, thank you, Mr. Sean Connery. You must visit Japan one day. But today you should do... You should go conquer the Amorphophallus titanium. It is the world's biggest flower, and it's so, so stinky. But uh, what does the name mean? It must be very, very unusual. If you know what it means or think you do, then email us at groks at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but you might just uh, wake up and smell the roses. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music. More music.